Welcome to Quit Bleeping Around, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve more in life. Here's your host, Christina Eanes. Hey, Super Achievers. In this episode, I'm interviewing Roger Hall. Roger is a business psychologist, speaker, and author of the book, Staying Happy, Being Productive, The Big 10 Things Successful People Do. Welcome, Roger. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you. Well, let's dive right in because there's a lot of moseying that we have to do today on all the different topics we're going to cover. But before, let's start with your background. Share a little bit with the listeners, please. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I am a consulting psychologist who has been in practice for about 30 years. I got my, I got my PhD from Ohio State in 1991. I started out as a clinician. Uh, and pretty quickly, I can't remember if it was six weeks or six months, I realized, boy, this is not for me. Um, but it took me a while to kind of pull myself out of that environment and and work my way over to the consulting side of, of psychology. And so consulting psychologists are people who work with, uh, in, in my case, business owners, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals to help them improve their mental game. Uh, much like a sports psychologist helps with a, helps with elite athletes to to help them get rid of the things that are impairing their high performance, I do that with business owners, entrepreneurs, and sales professionals. Oh, excellent! And an author. Yes, yeah. staying happy, being productive. So yeah. let's just start out with that. Then I know I know some people are asking right now, probably some people in my life, why do you have to be happy to be productive? Or maybe you don't have to, but how are those two related? Uh, great question. I think there are plenty of people who are productive and miserable. <laughs> and I, I, my goal was not to, to get them there. The, the goal was really for a person to have this abundant life, which means both emotionally happy and doing something really great for the world. And so it's happy and productive. And um, I, I have had the really good fortune in most of my career to work with very successful people. And I started watching the habits that they had. Um, I remember being uh, on my internship and one of my supervisors was teaching us marital therapy. And she said, you know, you can you can teach an unhappy couple how not to fight, but none of that will turn them into a happy couple because the habits that happy couples have are fundamentally different than unhappy couples. And it's stuck in my head. And then I read this book called Anna Karenina. And the first, and it's by Leo Tolstoy, it's a classic. And the first line is every happy family is the same. Every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. And it taught me that the habits of happiness are few, but the habits of unhappiness are pantheon. And I I was given a a speech to a group of of judges and I said this and the, the collective groan in the audience for these judges who are seeing people in their courts, yes, they all they all think they're going to do it their <laughs> way, and they all end up in my court. Um, so I, I started looking at these habits that 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 happy, successful people had, and I decided to write them down. And I 
I, I kept the notepad for years and, and started adding them. And at some point I said, I got to stop here. Uh, so I stopped at 10. Um, and I think these are the ones that most um, holistically describe happy, successful people. Oh, nice. And I love, I love that you say habits of happiness are few because that means that there's a few key things that we can learn to help with our happiness. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the number one thing, and, and this will sound counterintuitive, but happy people are inherently kind of dull. <laughs> you know, you look at, the, you look at their lives and, and, and there's no drama. Yeah. Um, that, you know, they eat dinner together, they spend time together. Um, and you look at that and you go, well, that doesn't seem very exciting. Well, they do have excitement, but the basic rhythm of their life is very drama free. Yeah, which I love in my life, <laughs> free of drama. <laughs> so um, I, we definitely want people to read the book so they can get through all 10 of those. But I do have a few questions for you in particular, like optimism versus pessimism. What can you say about those? Yeah, a lot of my thinking has really been influenced by a, a really foundational researcher, a guy named Martin Seligman, who wrote a book called Learned Optimism. He's a guy who who says, I'm a pessimist, but I'm trying, I'm, but I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to be an optimist. And and what he found in doing research um, for West Point is that they could reduce the number of dropouts in West Point by choosing in selection the optimists over the pessimists. And they've since improved it and they, 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 they now assess for a thing called grit. Um, but what they found is that, that optimists tend to persist longer in difficulty than pessimists. Pessimists come up to a hurdle and they go, well, it's just, it's never going to get better. It's never going to change. I'll just quit. And optimists think, I can figure it out. And they keep trying. And so what he started to look at was what are the, the basic um, mental habits of optimists versus pessimists? Um, and he, he found that pessimists tend to view things in three ways that he said first, um, the, 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 he calls it the three P's of pessimism, which is uh, permanence, pervasiveness, and personalization. So permanence is something goes badly. A pessimist will think it's a permanent thing. Yeah. So, you know, you're in the third grade and you fail a math test. A permanent attribution is I suck at math. I, I, I'm never going to be good at math. I've always been bad at math. I'm not even, why even bother trying at math? And, and so you take a specific discrete event and you expand it over time from the beginning of time to the end of time. And so we see how people who are pessimists do this all the time. They, they, they have a bad event and they expand it and project it into the future. You know, I failed at this business uh, or, or, or I got fired from this job. Therefore, I will always be a failure in work mm. or, or a failure in love or wh whatever, whatever the, the domain is. The second one, pervasiveness, doesn't just expand to fill time, but it expands to fill everything. And so you're in the third grade, you fail this math test, and you say, I suck at, I suck at math. I'm no good at school. 
kids in my class don't like me. I'm not very popular. I'm not good with people. The dog bit me last <laughs> week. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll eat some worms. You know, it, you know, you know I, I, I'll go live in a van down by the river. I mean, you, you, you take a one event and you expand it to fill the universe. Yeah. And, and, and that kind of thing will keep you from trying anything. And the third is personalization. And pessimists believe that Zeus is on Mount Olympus with lightning bolts with their name on. <laughs> and everybody has had this experience, which is you're, you're driving on the highway and you're in the fast lane and grandma is in front of you going five miles under the limit. And you, you know, after you scream at her, what do you say? You say, why does this always happen to me? Yeah. And so you believe that there's, you, you have like some special unluck. You're like Eeyore from, from Winnie <laughs> the Pooh, that this black rain cloud follows you around and rains on you all the yeah. time. Um, and so those are the three ways that pessimists think different than optimists. Optimists, if a bad event happens, they think, well, it's, you know, it's just this particular event. Oh, I flunked this math test. Well, I must not have tried hard enough. I'll study up. And in terms of pervasiveness, they think, well, it's in this domain. Okay, I'm no good at math. Okay, that's been resolved. But I'm good at all these other things. So I'll work on these other areas. And in terms of pervasiveness, they tend not to think that Zeus is on Mount Olympus with lightning bolts. They think, okay, I can figure out a way around this. I have agency or instrumentality. I can figure out how to solve this problem. Mm. This doesn't always happen to me. I love that. Um, and it's funny, as you were talking about the traits of a pessimism, I was thinking of Eeyore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so people, you know, I had this conversation with, with a woman once, and, and the research is really good, that optimists live longer, healthier, happier lives with more friends. Pessimists are right more often. <laughs> it, it's it's true. I mean, optimists tend to overestimate the likelihood of an event turning out. They, they, they're just wrong, uh -huh. you know? And, and so I asked this woman, I said, which would you rather be? Write a little bit more often or live a longer, healthier, happier life with more friends? And she said, I'd like to oh, write more. Oh, goodness. Said, okay. <laughs> you know, it, it's your life. Yeah, you your choice. <laughs> Your choice. You know, I was wondering too, as you were talking, it almost seems like there's a correlation between optimism and growth mindset and pessimism and fixed mindset. That's a great, yeah, yeah. Carol Dweck's work on, on, on mindset, I think there probably is. Um, and, and I would, I would off the top of my head say yes, uh, but I'm not sure anybody's ever correlated. Ooh. That. Uh, to me, that they go hand in yeah. hand. There's a new study out there for someone to do. <laughs> If it hasn't been done already. <laughs> so now part of um, staying happy, being productive is mental discipline and thought monitoring. Can you share a little more about that? Yeah. Um, I, every one of us has a stream of consciousness rolling through our head, bubbling all day long. And very few of us ever stick a ladle in to sample what's in that stream of consciousness. And what I find is that when people start doing this and put a ladle in and sample their stream of consciousness, they find it's full of trash. <laughs> and they've got this 
this stream full of trash run, running through their brain all the time. And so what I've encouraged people to do is, is do this three-step process, thought monitoring, thought stopping, and thought replacement. And, and thought monitoring, anyone can do. Everyone's got the equipment. You need your, you need your phone. You need a, a 99 cent pad of paper and a pencil. And on your phone, even if you have a dumb phone, you can do this. You don't even need a smartphone. On your dumb phone, you set an alarm to go off every hour for seven days. And so every hour it'll go off, let's say between seven in the morning and five at night or eight in the morning, six at night. 10 times a day, this, this alarm will go off. And when it goes off, what you need to do is write down on that pad of paper with your pencil, what was the thought on the top of your head? Now, this is not a journal. This is not a, you know, and then, <laughs> you know, it's none of that yeah. stuff. It's if you're thinking, I want a cheeseburger, you write down, I want a cheeseburger. If you think, you know, um, my boss is an idiot, you write down, my boss is an idiot. I mean, whatever's on the top of your head, you write it down. Or if it's good, yeah. you know, if you're watching your your kid out in the backyard playing, it's like, you know, Johnny's having fun. That's fine, too. So you do this for a week and you have 70 observations of what's in your stream of consciousness. And there are two side effects of this. The, the first is you almost always find a, an overriding theme of your thoughts, very often for people who come to see me, we find a negative theme. So, I, you know, I'll read through these and I'll hear very often, at least these days, it's urgency. There, there's this pressure, this speed pressure, which is a type of anxiety. So I, I hear things about stress and urgency and distraction, all anxiety related. Sometimes I'll see excessive guilt so people feeling guilty about lots of things and that will come up in that thought monitoring. Well, it's really important if you see this theme, then you know what the predominant head trash is that you've got to filter out. But the second side effect, which is actually, I think, more important, is it gives you 70 practices at looking at what you're thinking. Mm. And most of us don't do that. And if you have 70 times in one week when you stop and think about your thinking, it's, you know, it's called metacognition. That's an, it's an invaluable um, skill to learn, to be able to monitor what's happening in your head. Because once you start, do, once you do this, once you've got these 70 observations and once you start observing these these negative patterns of thinking, then you can go to the second stage, which is stopping it. So let's say your, your, your concern is excessive anxiety. When an anxious thought comes through your head, you go, oh, there it is again. I'm doing it again. And, and you begin to be say, okay, that's not going to get me what I want. That thought is not going to result in an outcome that's going to help me. And then the last one is thought replacement. And this is the step where sometimes people need some help, which is what is an accurate replacement thought for your unproductive um, negative thought? So you, you can't have a negative thought and then replace it with, you know, puppies and kittens and unicorns. <laughs> yeah. you, you have to replace it with something that's true 
and more productive. And what I found is that the lies we tell ourselves are mostly true. And the best lies are mostly true. So sometimes we need someone else to help us look at our head trash and help us redefine how we think. Uh, and so that can be, a, you know, a trusted advisor, a loved one, you know, a, a just a, a trusted friend, somebody who can say, okay, yeah, th- this is inaccurate. Let's, let's replace those thoughts with something slightly different, but more accurate. I like that. Is this also where maybe the ABCDE model would come in? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there was a, a a guy in the 1960s. He passed away. Um, um, gosh, it's it's probably been about 20 years ago. A, a guy named Albert Ellis, and he's one of the two fathers, along with a guy named Aaron Beck, of of, of a school of of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. And Albert Ellis was he was a great popularizer of, of, of this of this theory. Um, and if you want to watch him on YouTube, I'd encourage you to go watch him. Make sure there are no kids around because he cusses <laughs> like a sailor. But he's, he's very entertaining, very entertaining guy. And what he said is that um, you can retrain your thinking just by knowing the first five letters of the alphabet. And, and it's the ABC model of, of, of thought um, transformation. And so the A stands for the adversity, which is, or, or the activating event. And so uh, we'll use an easy example. So my grandmother dies. That's the adversity. And the C, we're going to skip over B for now, but the C stands for consequence, which is um, in our language, my grandmother dies. And what do we say? My grandmother died and that made me sad. Mm-hmm. That's the consequence. That's the emotional consequence of the event, the activating event or the adversity. And here's the brilliant piece about Ellis's work. He says, it's not the event that makes us sad. It's the B. It's the belief about the event that makes us sad. So, so my grandmother dies. I believe I'll never get that apple walnut waffle recipe. I, I believe... I'll never get to tell her I love her. Um, I believe I'll never get to hear more stories about grandpa. I, I, I believe uh, I'll never get another pair of socks from her for Christmas. You know, all of those things are true. And because I wish I would have uh, told her I loved her more and spent more time with her, my consequences, I feel sad. So that's an accurate belief and an accurate and productive consequence. My grandmother dies. I loved her. I feel sad. All that makes sense. Now watch what happens when we change the belief. Grandma dies. Belief. Oh, good. The old bird's <laughs> dead. Now I get the money. Consequence. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so what it tells us is that, that if we can change our beliefs, and again, you know, oh, good. The old bird's dead. Now I get the money part is is not an accurate or productive belief, but if we can change our beliefs, even slightly, we can change the emotional consequence. And then we dispute. How do we do that? So so disputation is essentially arguing with yourself. And then the E is evidence. It's arguing with yourself based on evidence to change that belief to something more productive. And so, 
So the ABCDE is activating event, belief, consequence, disputation, arguing with yourself based on E, the evidence. And then the other part of the E is experimentation. You give it an experiment. You try it out. And so what I have found is that sometimes people need help disputing their own beliefs. And once they get a little training and a little practice, they get better at disputing their own beliefs. They get better at seeing how they are lying to themselves. I love that. So I'm, I'm actually going to go as YouTube, right? So I'm going to Google Albert Ellis and, and listen to some of Albert his talks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's, he's very, he was very entertaining. I had the good fortune of meeting him a couple of times and hearing him speak. And he, he's just that, he was just that grumpy, you know, Grumpy New Yorker. <laughs> um, and and I, I mean, I just found him really, really appealing. Oh, <laughs> now a, a lot of this is uh, encapsulated in emotional intelligence, essentially. Yeah. So, um, and I know you talk about the neurobiology of emotional intelligence. So I'm very curious. Please share. Yeah. So um, back in the 90s, I guess it was maybe even in the 80s, a, a journalist named Daniel Goleman kind of coined the term emotional intelligence. And he said that there are five basic pieces of emotional intelligence. And I, I created an acronym for his five things. The, and it, the acronym is POWER. And the P stands for proactivity. And, and what he calls it is intrinsic motivation or initiative or drive or agency, whatever it is. Uh, I, had a, I had a client used to call it Goji. He said he's only going to hire people with Goji. I like that. Um, and, and that stands separate and apart from the other four. Um, you either got you either got initiative, you either are proactive or you're not. Mm -hmm. And you just meet those people who are just out there, you know, kicking butt and taking names and they're proactive. The other four kind of hang together and, it, it, and it's monitoring and managing yourself and others. And so when you monitor yourself, that's your observing yourself or self-awareness. And so you great leaders are self-aware. They know what their stream of consciousness looks like. They know what's inside their head. Then the second is uh, managing self, which is willpower. It is self-control. And so, so proactivity, observation, willpower. So that's, it's, it, when I observe myself and, and, I, and I monitor myself, I realize I want to yell at somebody because I'm angry. I'm aware that I'm angry. Self-control or willpower is editing that yeah. and not letting that show. And so the, then the next one is how do you monitor the emotions of others? And that's empathy. And great leaders are able to monitor what's happening in others. And we'll talk about the neurobiology of what's going on there. And the last one is resonance. Um, and that's the ability to manage the emotions of others. And great leaders are able to join a, a, a person in their emotional state and draw them out to a different emotional state. So it's, it's proactivity, observation, willpower, empathy and resonance. And, and the neurobiology is, 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 I think, pretty, 
you know, because I'm kind of a neuro. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that, that human beings and primates have these things called mirror neurons. So human beings are wired to be watching other people's faces, imitating them, and then coming up with a conclusion about what they think. So if you've ever had a baby and you do that surprised face with a baby who's really, really young, they make that surprised face back at yeah. you. Well, where did that come from? Well, it's kind of hardwired in that we humans and primates are wired to look at other people's behavior and imitate it, and particularly at faces. And so human beings for the most part, are wired to look at faces. Yeah, you, you know, and some people are eye lookers, some people are mouth lookers, and some people are, are not even face lookers. <laughs> but, but most of us look at each other in the face, and we're reading data from yeah. that. And that that's um, characteristic of humans and other primates. Oh, I love that. Um, the The next thing is is emotions are contagious. Oh yeah, and. <laughs> I, I, I talked to a guy once who was the president of a company and he says, when I walk in, the distribution center can be on fire, but I never walk fast. He says, because if I walk through reception fast, someone at reception who's looking at my face and looking at my behavior calls accounting and accounting <laughs> calls marketing, marketing calls sales, sales calls, you know, and pretty soon I've got 250 people worried about my emotional state. Yeah. So he said, my hair can catch on fire as soon as my door is closed. <laughs> but until then, everyone is looking at me and I can infect them for good or for ill with my emotion. So he says, I have to regulate that. So yeah. he, he, here was a guy with incredible self-awareness, that observation, and then an incredible willpower, you know, because he's, he's controlling his behavior because he knows he infects others. Now here's here's the thing. So I was I, I was in um, Chicago O'Hare Airport. This was years ago, and I had had meetings in Chicago, and so I'd, I'd done everything I needed to do, right? And so uh, I go to the airport early, and I'm trying to get an early flight out. So I've got my boarding pass, I got my seating assignment, and I go to a gate flying direct to my hometown on an earlier flight, and I say, "Hey, if you got any spare uh, seats, I, I, I'd love to help out, and you know, I'd like to get out of here early, you know." And they said, "Okay, well, we'll get to you." And within 20 minutes, I'm starting to freak out. Like, I wonder if I'm going to make my plane. Well, I, I had like eight hours until my flight left. I figured I'd work at the airport and try to get – there were three flights earlier than mine. I thought, well, I am bound to get one of these out. And if I don't, I've, uh, you know, I'll just leave on, at the normal time. And within 20 minutes, I'm starting to get worried. And I said to myself, I wonder if they're like pheromones coming <laughs> off people and I'm inhaling these and, and they're making me freak yeah. out. and. When I get home, I'm going to research this, which wasn't that day. I didn't get out. Of, I didn't get out of Chicago. Oh, but but I mean, it's 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 air. Yeah. Travel. What are you going to do? So when I got home, I started doing research between emotional contagion and olfaction, and I found this study. And actually, I just got a new study just came out this week that supports this. So I'll tell you the study. It's really kind of gross. <laughs> so 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 most people don't want to sign up, but. They have a group of people and they have them work out and exercise. And in the middle of that exercise, they have them lift their arms and they take pieces of fabric and they wipe their underarms and they say, thank you very much. <laughs> and they collect these pieces of fabric. 
And then they take that same group of people and they have them watch a scary movie. And in the middle of the really scary part, they have them lift their arms and they swab their <laughs> underarms and sample this. And uh, yeah, it's, it's gross. Already, I know. Who's right? thinking up these things? <laughs> Wait, it's only going to get grosser. So just strap in. So then they take a, a, a separate group of people and they say, we're going to put you in, in an fMRI machine. An fMRI is a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine. Most people have had an MRI. They slide you in that tube and they take pictures of what's going on inside you, right? And F, the F part means um, they add on to it this thing called positron emission tomography. In other words, you huff radioactive glucose and that glucose goes to the parts of your brain that are active. Well, the part of your brain that's active during fear are these two little structures deep in your brain called the amygdala. And it's far more complicated than just to say the amygdala's in charge. Yeah. But let's if, if if we were to say the amygdala is the fuse that lights the whole anger, anxiety, fear response. Um, those amygdala are active during that fear or anger response. So they they get people in the tube, and right before they go in, they say, hey, "We're going to put this piece of fabric over." Here. <laughs> yeah, really gross. So. The, and it's exactly what you think. It's the sweat. So the half of the group, they slide in the tube. And these are people who have the fabric over their nose and mouth that's sweat collected during exercise. What do you think happens to their amygdala? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but then they slide this other group of people in who have the fear sweat fabric over their nose and mouth. And what happens? Lo and behold, their amygdala light up. People are not even aware that they're smelling fear, but the but the the scent of fear actually lights up the fear centers in the brain. Oh wow. So think about this in the workplace. I'm a leader, I come in, I'm freaking out about something. Okay. Everybody can read my face. They can read my body language. It spreads like they wildfire. They can smell the you. <laughs> and they smell me. And so I am contagious. So that's why self-awareness and self-control, observation and willpower are so important for leaders because like it or not, know it or not, we're infecting others with our predominant emotion. Yeah. Oh, all over the place. Yeah. I, I can think of how that could relate to so many different, anytime people are together, <laughs> which yes. I'm wondering, is that why people love to watch uh, scary movies together? Because they, they smell each other. And <laughs> I, I, I got to be honest with you. I never understood scary I movies. don't either, but I'm just trying to understand that culture. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't understand it. The first job I had the first real job after a paper route was working at a movie theater. And one of the first movies that was playing was Friday. Oh. And I, I just, I never understood it. I still don't today. <laughs> I don't like scary movies. Oh, see, I always figured if you're just not young and having sex in the woods, you're safe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just teasing. <laughs> oh my gosh, we have covered so much. And I think we could probably talk for hours more. <laughs> Um, can you go ahead, though, and share information about your products and services with our listeners? Absolutely. I, I'm grateful for you asking. So um, my website is uh, drrogerhall.com, drrogerhall.com. Um, you can find my book at Staying Happy, Being Productive, 
com. It's also available on Amazon, but it's, it's staying happy, being productive.com. Uh, and I have an online course that I have developed called freak out fear, less live more. Ooh. And it's, um, it's, uh, a four session course, chock full of information about, um, the science of fear. Some of the things we've talked about today, what is it that people fear? How do you overcome your fears? And then the last session is how do you live? Uh, how do you live more? How do you have purpose and meaning in your life so that you're willing to overcome your fears? I love it. So you're living a longer, happier, healthier life and yes. not necessarily so being right it. all the time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's it at, at freakoutcourse.com. Oh, awesome. Okay. I'll make sure um, the main website gets in there and I'm sure that links to everything, right? Awesome. Yeah, it absolutely does. Okay. We're at that point. Your final piece of advice. You know, my final piece of advice is, is that people who are self-developing very often have a list of things that they want to improve. And the successful people I've worked with engage in what they call a cornerstone habit. They decide I'm going to change one thing for the better. And I'm going to get really good at changing that one thing before I try to change two things. So my, my refrain is let's pick one thing and change that. Let's not try to pick 47 things, <laughs> or even five things. Let's choose the one thing you're going to work on. Get really good at that before you try to change the second thing. I love that. That's good advice, especially for those of us that have a lot of go juice and want to do a lot of different things. <laughs> the yeah. one thing. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today, Roger. I'm so grateful to have been invited. Thank you for having me on your show. If you'd like to learn more about Roger, visit his website at drrogerhall.com. Interested in expanding your employee development program? Visit ChristinaEans.com to look at the many workshops Christina has available for you.